Welcome back to the Go in the Match podcast. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Lorenzo, a lifelong Palermo fan, and we're going to be discussing the highs and lows of Palermo Football Club and uncovering what really happened to the Sicilian club. Lorenzo, thanks for giving up your time today, mate, coming on the podcast. Mike, thanks for having me on here. I'm always excited to uh, talk about my beloved Rosanero, so um, <laughs> let's get into it. <laughs> So firstly, before we do start talking about the football club and what happened, can you just give us a bit of background on yourself and how you came to support in Palermo and how you ended up following the football club? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my name is Lorenzo Vicini. Uh, got that nice Italian name, but um, really my support for the club does go back a good 20 years. Um, and really it's pretty much ingrained in my family's history. So I'm currently based in, in the United States and um, back in the day, post-World War II, my, my grandfather emigrated from Sicily, a uh, couple towns just outside of, about 20 minutes outside of Palermo. And they emigrated over to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And with that though, I was fortunate growing up to still have family back in the homeland. And so, we would often go back to Sicily at any chance that we could we could get, and really, um, you know, get to spend time with family and you know be an honorary Sicilian for uh, a couple of weeks out of the year every every year. But anyway, um, from a sporting side of the house, you know, in the '90s, early 2000s, it was basically impossible to to try to follow some club that you weren't, you know, geographically tied to, at least, you know, the internet was still just in its, you know, probably toddler years, so I was going to frame it that way. But, you know, there wasn't a, a really good way of me to, to see how Palermo was doing, you know, where they were at and, and what have you. And so it really wasn't until the early 2000s when the advent of the internet and the rise of like websites and streaming and whatnot that, you know, I started to get a little bit more engaged. And fortunately, on, on my part, talking with my cousins over there and, and everybody that was still there, I, I could keep in touch every once in a while. But at the advent of that streaming and taking off that way, it was a lot easier for me to tune in, watching on sketchy streams, uh, reading a, a bunch of the fan websites, as well as, you know, some of the official sources. Um, but it worked out really well for me because that coincided perfectly with essentially the glory days of the club. And it was right about 2003, 2004, um, when, you know, Maurizio Zamparini, the man himself came by and purchased the club. And that really set them on the trajectory to what I got to live and experience for, you know, the better half of, uh, the next uh, decade and a half. So, um, a lot of my support is is tied to familial roots, um, but not only that, it has given me an opportunity to attend matches over there, um, get in touch with people both within the club as well as you know key journalists and even players. And so um, I'm really lucky that you know I was able to get in at the right time, if you think about it that way. Uh, you know, as opposed to maybe even before that, but, um, you know, once, once that really sunk in, it was, it was, uh, an addiction to be honest. And so that led to, um, 
you know, blogging on various sites about the club. There was a, there used to be a central hub called the Offside, which, which was just a huge blogging site for clubs of, across the world. And so each, the, the way the site was set up, and it was great, the way the site was set up was they looked for bloggers who supported each club. Obviously the bigger clubs like Liverpool, they might've had two or three or four different bloggers but it was a very cool interface where you could just hop in and it connected the community, yeah. um, you know, from that perspective. Eventually they were bought by SB Nation, but I was one of the bloggers for Palermo and one of the primary ones at that. We built a little English speaking community. I would translate um, certain press conferences and, and happenings and, you know, even things like match ratings via that site. Well, SB Nation came along, they bought the offside. They only cared about the big boys like Liverpool and other clubs that were going to bring in the revenue. And so um, we were kind of left at a crossroads. What are we going to do? And it was at that point that I started a site called ultrapalermo.com. And really it was an extension of our previously our previous experience on the offside, but it was one that I got the control from start to finish. And we already had that community. We had a Twitter account that was connected to it and, Man, it was a great, it was a great, great time. And um, honestly, that's that's what allowed my passion to kind of seep through. And I got a lot of enjoyment and fulfillment about keeping other people engaged in what was going on in the club. So that's a little bit of the background about where I was. I did that for many years. We never had a podcast, but I would every once in a while be invited to talk about um, what was going on. Uh, and then things got a little chaotic. And then people were having me on to figure out what was going on. So, uh, yeah, that's that's a little bit about me. <laughs> and you spoke there about um, sort of the glory days that, that, you know, in the early 2000s. So I think when maybe our listeners think of Palermo, they think of that pink kit that used to be on FIFA and they'll automatically think of the likes of Edison Cavani, Paolo Dybala, Javier Pastore, Andrew Blotti, Luca Toni, all these fantastic names and great players that came through the club and, and were bought at the time as well. Just talk to me about the sort of team that you had there and how fantastic some of those names were and are still today. Yeah, uh, Mike, it, it was, honestly, it, it was a tremendous time to be a fan of the club. And we can start with, um, you know, right even before the 2006 season. So here, here Palermo was, newly promoted to Serie A, and they were a force, honestly. And they had a lot of good players who maybe had not had the name recognition just yet, but it was coming. So you had a guy like Luca Toni. You had somebody like Andrea Barzali. You had somebody like Christian Zaccardo. And even uh, a midfielder like Simone Barone. And a year later, you know, after that season, Italy called up four of those players and, you know, at least two of them played a crucial role in that glorious World Cup victory. Yeah. You know, you talk about Andrea Bartali and his role, but really um, it was Fabio Grosso. And excuse me, I said Andrea Bartali, he was later. I meant Fabio Grosso uh, and Christian Zaccardo, but those two, so you had Grosso and Luca Toni really become forces in that tournament. And at, at, at the time, Inter had already come up and snatched Grosso, but, you know, I still counted him in, him, in, in my bucket, similar to Luca Toni. But, yeah. um, you know, without Fabio Grosso, 
Italy does not win that World Cup, and maybe the trajectory of the national team is a little different. I don't know. But it really started there. And, you know, even maybe some players who might not have the recognition outside of the club, but they were just as important. I'm talking about uh, individuals like Eugenio Corini and even Lamberto Zauli, who, you know, we look back at those. If you're a Palermo supporter and you were around at that time, those are some very fond names that you recall and you just um, get a little bit emotional about it because, you know, of what they meant to to yeah. both the city and the team. And so you, what Zamparini did when he was an owner was he took on that operation where he would look for players who might've been unknown, whether that was domestically or obviously abroad. The, the South American contingent was very strong and it was a good pipeline for um, how the club became successful. So when you had folks like Fabrizio Micoli and then you complemented them with a Javier Pastore or an Edinson Cavani. And Mike, I, I, I love that you bring up Cavani because a lot of people nowadays will associate him with Napoli yeah. or PSG, but it was Palermo that launched him. You know, without Palermo coming in and, and signing, signing him uh, from the Uruguayan club there he, that he was at, who knows what would happen. But, you know, he was always somebody who, he was such a hard worker for the club and the results didn't always come, but you could tell he was relentless. He would be up and down the pitch. It didn't matter. He's playing striker, but he's tracking back in our, in our uh, uh, defensive third. And so when they sold him to, to Napoli, it was kind of like, well, he's a good player. Let's see. And then obviously at Napoli, he exploded. He took it to another level and I'm happy for him because, you know, once again, it's that tie. Some of the pride that I think, Palermo supporters have, if you talk to them, can point to these players who made their mark at our club first and then became superstars. You know, Paolo Dybala, uh, another one where, you know, it's very interesting to me coming at this. I try to come at things from a level head or at least a, uh, a mode of, hey, I'm going to be rational about this. You go on fan sites and I remember back then, when, even when we signed Pastore and when we signed Dybala, you have people in the comments, you know, who's this kid? Wow, we spent how much? I mean, Paolo Dybala was the most expensive purchase in the club's history at the time. We spent over 11 million euro on somebody who looked like legitimately a kid. He looked like a child. And, you know, a lot of these comments um, around this guy's going to, wow, worthless. And then to see them come on and really become club icons is, is, is just fantastic. And, you know, a lot of it, you think about this, there were a lot of calculated risks that were taken in the mid to late 2000s. And most, you know, you didn't need all of them to pay off. You needed a couple. But what they, what, what Zamparini and his, his way of operating, his belief was that he takes some of these players who become burgeoning stars, he sells them for a profit and then those funds to reinvest in the club. And, you know, for a while it did work. Now we can get into some of the things that led to the club's downfall, but honestly, that, that, um, that belief system really led to, you know, nearly making to the Champions League and, you know, some of the finishes in the upper half of the table versus, you know, constantly fighting for relegation. And now 
you know, as I look today, the way the cultural landscape is, you'll see other clubs have similar blueprints to success. Udinese at the time was very similar with what they did. And they brought in folks like Alexis Sanchez. They paired him with a veteran like uh, at the time it was Antonio Di Dentale. You take Palermo here, we had a kid like Pastore, we pair him up with a veteran like Fabrizio Micoli, or even a Joseph Ilicic. I, I want to shout out Ilicic because that was another thing. We play in a Europa League tournament and we almost get bounced by this team from Slovenia. And everybody was like, what is going on? And it was two players in particular that were just destroying us. Uh, it was a midfielder uh, by the name of Bacinovic. And then it was this lanky forward slash winger slash, I don't know, even know what he was named Joseph Ilicic. We nearly get bounced for the Zamparini do. He says, you know what? I'm going to buy these two kids because we'll bring them on. And there were some peaks and valleys, but ultimately Ilicic did, did very well for uh, Palermo too. So the other example I want to use in, in modern day is Atalanta. Atalanta it very much following that strategy of yeah. let's get some veterans, but also let's find some hidden gems and see if they pop off. Or let's pick off the scrap heap from other, other clubs that they spent the money. These kids turn out to be busts. Why don't we try and, and pick them up? So, um, you know, I look back at that very well. Now, obviously, those are the good names. Um, there are even others that, you know, don't always come top of mind when you think about some of these hidden talents that, that Palermo uncovered. And Simone Kerr, uh, for example, he was another one that was brought and played a vital role in one of our best seasons as a central defender. Um, you know, I, I will always have love for Amaury. Uh, because when he came on, it was a season that at the end of the first half of the season, the club was in first place. And we really were dreaming of, like, as shocking as this is, you want to talk about things that change the course of, you know, perhaps the club history. But Amaury, his partnership at the beginning of that season that led us, I think it was like 2007, 2008, um, we finished the season in first place uh, or finished the first half in first place in the beginning of the second half, the Andata, he goes and blows out his knee. And after that, like the results just dropped and we missed out on like what seemed to be a lock that year, Champions League, which was always Zamparini's goal. It was, he always wanted that Champions League uh, spot and, you know, that injury ruins it. And, you know, it's like one of those things where you go back, but these are individuals that have meant a lot to the club. Even somebody like Franco Brienza, um, Franco Vazquez. There was another one where he was one foot out the door at Palermo when we were in Serie B because the previous coach was like, ah, we have no use for this kid. And while we were in Serie B, um, Beppe Iacchini, our coach at the time, came in and said, I, I see something. I want to I don't want you guys to sell him. We're going to keep him. And in that second half of that dominant Serie B season, Vazquez and Dybala formed an incredible partnership, very similar to the one that Pastore and Ilicic had, along with Mikuri. And, um, you know, he turned into a, a, a pretty good name. It was also that season that there were two other names. 
Andrea Balotti, who we bought from some small club in Serie C, and Kyle Lafferty, uh, a Northern Irishman. I mean, if you think about it, how crazy that is. And I had the I had the privilege of talking to to Kyle once or twice about you know what it was like for him to go from. I, I just I'll never forget when when Palermo signed this guy and all these fans were like wait, who, why, what? <laughs> and he, become, he, he honestly did become a, a cult-like figure at the club, even in that short stint that he was here. He was beloved. He, you know, had some fantastic performances. And let's face it, he was stealing, uh, he was stealing starting jobs from both Dybala and Andrea Belotti. So if you think about that during a <laughs> record-setting Serie B season, it was Kyle Lafferty leading the line, I think, with Abel Hernandez and, and some others. So, you know, those are just some of the names and I, I could keep going on and on. But, yeah, we, we look fondly on that. And, and really, you know, we take pride in seeing how successful some of these individuals have been even outside of, outside of Sicily. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to use the, uh, the blueprint that Palermo have sort of set. And I think Atalanta is a really um, comparable one. You know, they, they, they are real at the Palermo of now, really. But similar again, it's almost like, I think Palermo finished fifth. So obviously, they just missed out on Champions League when they were in Serie A for a few seasons, which is obviously an incredible achievement. You know, getting European football for Palermo is brilliant. But do you ever wonder what would happen if you'd have kept all those players? And I think Atalanta are in a similar position now where... Some of their players, they sell a few and then, you know, they might bring someone in who is similar or maybe not as good. And, then, you know, there comes a point where you have to keep all your players. Do you, do you ever sort of do you ever sort of reminisce of what would have happened if you'd have kept all those players? Oh, all the time. All the time. And in fact, that fifth place finish that, that you do mention is, is look, the, the colours of our shirt are pink and black. They're rosa and nero, and the line is that those colors represent the the sweet and the sad. Think of it almost as bittersweet, and it's because this has pretty much been how the club has been throughout its history. Not just the recent times, but you know, you have some of your, your of your very high highs, and then you'll have your very low lows. Yeah, and that's really what this club has been about. That season, that fifth place finish, I remember like it was yesterday. And I remember it was the second week. It was the, the penultimate week of the season. And we were playing Sampdoria, who were also fighting for fourth place. And so it was that final Champions League spot. We played them at home. And I think there was an early penalty where uh, Sampdoria ended up going up 1-0. And uh, in the second half, Mikuli got fouled, hacked down. His leg was not good, not in a good place uh, at that at that point. But he stepped up. He took the penalty anyway, and he scored it and drew us level 1-1. But we needed to win. Uh, a draw wasn't going to do it. He had to be stubbed out, actually tore his ACL. So not only did he have a torn ACL when he took that penalty, he even played for another five minutes after that. But in that game, after that, I think this was like 10 minutes, until the end of the match, we had a chance to 
go ahead, have a go ahead goal. And when I say I remember this like yesterday, Igor Budan, who was one of our reserve strikers, there was a header that came his way, wide open header. The goalkeeper was off his line. It was an open goal. And I still remember to this day, he headed it and he missed. And I replay that over and over because, yeah, what happens if he, if he makes that? And then the following week, you know, it was a all said and done. They were going to qualify. You have Champions League football the next season. That means in all likelihood that you have more resources at your disposal. With that does come an influx of cash. And, you know, who knows what happens? And that very well could have been a difference maker in how the club would have survived uh, under Zamparini, and we can get into that. Um, but that, that, that was uh, because it was that moment um, in that game that really kind of changed the course of history, both for the club and for Zamparini. Maybe not right away, right? Following season, they were still okay. But the dominoes, you know, started to tumble. Uh, and after that, you know, a relegation, you'd come right back up. But then after another two years, you get relegated again. And that's really where the chaos had already started to happen. But, you know, it's a good point, Mike. The blueprint works. It does. But there are some, there are some key things that you need in order for that blueprint to be successful. And maybe I'll 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 uh, touch on that here if you have another question or something. Yeah, I mean let let's get straight into the the juicy bit. I think the bit that the listeners really want to sort of get the teeth stuck into, which is what really did happen to Palermo. So I think the best place to start probably is with Zamperini. Um, and I think he I think at time of recording he's actually just passed away the other day. I think I'm right in saying, didn't he? Um, he- but just, just for some sort of context for our listeners with Zamperini. So he was the former president of Venezia, um, to which he sold in 2002. Uh, he then took over Palermo for 50 million euros, I think I'm right in saying. And obviously he wanted to get promotion to CIA. And, you know, he's bringing in the likes of people that we've just said, like Luca Toni, Grosso. And, um, you know, he, they obviously, like you touched on before, went on to win a World Cup in 2006. So, however... The big thing here is that Zamperini did hire and fire 15 different managers from 2002 to 2007. And I think that just showed how trigger happy he was. So, you know, just from your point of view, and I suppose you can speak for the Palermo fans, how did they sort of react to all that madness hiring and firing? Maurizio Zamperini did pass away uh, a couple of days ago. And, you know, it's very sad. Palermo fans are always going to be eternally grateful for his time at the helm as both owner and president of the club. Um, But it was maddening at times. I know you mentioned the fact that, you know, there were all these coaching appointments. Mike, I kept a spreadsheet, a detailed spreadsheet of all the hiring and firings from his time as owner from the very beginning all the way to the very end. And that total, by the way, that's 46, four, six, 46 um, hiring and firings uh, of coaches. And that's just coaches, by the way, because they were also sporting directors and other staff that would get the, you know, that would have to be shown the door. So 
you know, one of these days I'll, I'll include those numbers, but that's going to be another effort here. Um, but yeah, so when I say the blueprint to be successful has a couple of conditions, one of them is very much stability. And Zamparini was known as a manja allenatori, a coach eater. And it was because he had this fiery passion. Let's get, it was passion where he wanted to see results. And if he felt that he wasn't going to get results, he would pull the plug very quickly. Um, you know, in that list, there were guys who didn't even make it. They were hired in the off season and didn't even make it to the start of the regular season. Um, you know, that was Stefano Pioli. Uh, the guy coaching Atalanta today, Gasparini, he was a coach that lasted, I think it was something like, I don't know, maybe 140 days. Uh, at one point, then he was fired and then he was brought back and he lasted for two weeks. So the, the issue here was during the, the heyday, what you saw was when the club was at its most successful, it was because they had stability with the coach. And so it started with uh, Guidaline, who oversaw the promotion to Serie A, but also um, was very successful in those first couple seasons in, um, in Serie A. And then slowly but surely, he was hired and fired, I, I think, something like four or five times. Um, and then, you know, you had this period where it was like up and down results, a lot of different coaching changes. And then somebody like Delio Rossi came in. And he, was, he, he came in and replaced Walter Zenga, who we had hired from Catania, our rival. And Delio Rossi was one of those coaching legends. And he had the best results ever for the club under Zamparini. He was the coach who was around for that fifth place finish. If you think about things that you ever wonder about, it, it, one of those is not just at the end of the season. What if we had Delio Rossi at the beginning of the season? The whole reason why he was brought on was because Zenga did not have a bunch of good results. It was mixed results for the first 13 games. So you have Delio Rossi, Rossi there at the beginning. Yeah, maybe we finish third, not even have to worry about finishing fifth. But that had always been the key. And so Zamparini and, and his relationship with coaches led to a lot of torment with us fans. And, you know, we were always grateful for his money and his leadership and, and whatnot, but it was always like, man, I just wish that you had a little patience. Here's the other thing. Zamparini didn't even watch the games. I don't know if you know this. Really? He, he would be so nervous that he would not go to the stadium for the games that his, the club he owned played in. He would take a taxi cab and just drive around the city and then get the results after the fact. So, you know, he was a, he was a, creature of habit and one of his habits unfortunately was firing uh, everybody in his sight um now that being said i have a funny little anecdote about this because you know a lot of the tumultuousness led to you know a season where everything under the sun everything under the sun happened that that year it was a 2015 2016 season where we had more coaching appointments than wins at one point. And we were hovering over rele the, the, the relegation zone. But we had a team that was good enough on paper that we shouldn't have been in that spot. Yet, when you go from 
Iatini to Ballardini to an Argentine who didn't even have the proper coaching license in Barroscoloto to an assistant to another assistant back to the first assistant and then um, you know another new coach and then we ended up with the guy that we started the season with. Believe it or not, I just ran down the list that year um, of like six or seven different coaches that were on the bench that season. And then the sport on the sporting director side too, there were at least three that revolving doors. So long story short, and I've told this maybe on other podcasts, but I love telling this story because it is both a reflection of the type of person Zamparini is both from an endearing side, but also shows, you know, who he was. So it was late in the season. I was pretty frustrated as a fan, which is what you're asking about. Like, what, how, how, how can this keep happening? And I had, because of some contacts that I had both with the club and, and with journalists over there, I had Zamparini's email address. And one night I wrote him an email just basically saying, hey, I'm a fan. I love the club. I know I don't really have any real stake in this this doesn't matter what i say but i just wanted to let you know you know i feel like the club would benefit from some stability like how can the players perform if every other week it's a new trainer yeah and i didn't expect a response and it was really honestly it was a respectful it was not one of these i'm I'm raging via email i wrote it in italian and you know i I fired it off um not thinking anything of it 12 hours later, I woke up to an email sitting in my inbox at at 5.30 a.m. my time. And it was from his email. And I could not believe, like, wait a minute. Is this this Zamparini? Is he really responding? And sure enough, it was him. Now, not only did he respond to my email, which I thought was incredible enough, he decided to give me a point-by-point breakdown of why this entire situation was not his fault and was actually the fault of his coaches and other things. And he had a bulleted list that started with the letter A and ended with the letter J. And it was incredible to see his responses. Not only this, he was making, so Zamparini, you could always get a great quote from him just anytime he spoke, whether it was the media to fans or what have you. And he always used to make crazy comparisons about this player is going to be the next, I don't know, superstar. Right. And so in this email, some of the players that we had at the time, he called one of them, the next Ibrahimovic. And uh, Mike, I don't think you've ever heard of Norbert Belog. So it's safe to say that he did not become the next Ibrahimovic. And I think he's playing back in Hungary, like in the second division or something like that. But that was one of the things that was in that email. But better yet was two things. He was spelling the names of his players wrong, which I found hilarious, but that's actually how Zamparini was. He'd often say their names wrong. Um, And the, at the very end of this very lengthy email, I saw a little thing that said it was sent from his iPad. So I just imagine that he was sitting there hunting and pecking on his iPad, furiously typing up why 
he should be exonerated from the finger pointing as he had nothing to do with that. And ultimately, you know, that was who Zamparini was. He was very passionate. Um, you know, it was incredibly sad. I, I, I spoke with some friends when he passed away a couple of days ago, including some journalist friends over in Sicily. And I had mentioned, like, I didn't expect to be as sad as I was, but I really was um, quite saddened by his passing. Uh, a little unexpected. He was 80 years old, but he will always be remembered more positively than negatively at Palermo. And that even goes into where it all went wrong, um, you know, and his role in that. Despite all that, I think we look back at more of the rosa than the nero, more of the pink than the black in terms of the emotions and and the good times that we had um, under his um, leadership. That's a fantastic story. what I wanted to touch on as well was, you know, you talked talked about some of these players before, like your likes of Cavani and and your Dybalas. And, you know, obviously it, it came a point where these players had to be sold. So, you know, Cavani went to Napoli and, you know, all these players that, that were sold, you, you did have a good history of replacing them. Um, however, I think it was in 2011, um, that seen the entire squad change with about 25 new players brought in, which you know, brought about a, a few yo-yo seasons, like you touched on before, going down to Serie B, back up to Serie A. But that cycle of selling players, it came again. Dybala went Juventus, um, Belotti went to Torino, and Abel Hernandez went to, of all places, Hull City. Um, <laughs> how did Palermo fans feel at this time? Were they worried or did they, did they understand that that was the sort of cycle and, you know, did they sort of, you know, almost enjoy the experience or was there a lot of worry about, you know, what's really going on behind the football club? What's what's going on behind the scenes? Yeah, there, there, there was always worry um, when you're coming off of a very successful, like that fifth place finish also was capped off by uh, a Coppa Italia final that they played in Rome and, um, or, or not that season, but it was after the Coppa Italia final where there was this sense that things were going to change. Mikuli's time at Palermo seemed to be up. Other players you knew were about to be sold. You think Pastore, you think Sirigu, um, our, our goalkeeper. Both of those individuals were sold to PSG just as they started to um, make waves in the, in the transfer market under their new ownership. And so you knew things were going to be different. The problem was that that following season in the season where they got relegated um, the first time to Serie B, the instability with the coaching changes also happened with instability of the roster where during the winter window, the majority of those players that you just mentioned were purchased as a panic buy right at the end of that winter window where we brought in 12 or 13 players. And out of all of those, I think only one of them ended up being uh, successful with the club. And that was Stefano Sorrentino, the goalkeeper who ended up being um, our keeper for the next four or five years. The rest though, it was like, we're trying to avoid relegation. So let's bring anybody and everybody. And really it was basically like that. Anybody and everybody, guys that 
you know, you almost forget that we had Mauro Bocelli or uh, a, a Portuguese winger uh, fullback named Nelson. Like it was, it, it was so chaotic that you couldn't even keep track. And, you know, that led to that first um, relegation to Serie B. Now, what Zamparini successfully was able to do was still build back that team to be somewhat successful. And that's when Dybala ended up being, um, uh, started to develop and grow. That's when somebody like Franco Vazquez was around. And then looking back at that model, we had some key veterans that were brought on. You think about Enzo Maresca, you think about um, Alberto Giladino, and even uh, Alessandro Diamanti. So you had these elements here that were still helping, but it was nothing like you know what we saw several years prior. So that when these pieces started to be sold, their replacements, I, I remember because it was a it was almost like the decision was made to stop looking in South America and, and think that maybe places in Eastern Europe were going to allow for continued success. So it was about like finding the next burgeoning area for player development. And then unfortunately, those players that came, came on, that, nationality aside, that doesn't really matter. But the players that we ended up spending money on did not have that sort of pedigree or that sort of potential to become successful. So when they got relegated again, um, you know, the big thing in Italy, as I'm sure it is with everywhere, but Italy especially, you can survive a relegation from Serie A to Serie B. You can survive that as long as you go right back up. So you can deal with a season in Serie B because even the wage bill, can be inflated because you still have some money coming down from your previous year's TV rights and whatnot. So as long as you do that, you, you can survive. Yeah. The problem here with that second relegation, yes, part of it is on Palermo for sure. And part of it was stability, but I distinctly remember the club did not finish in first place. So they missed out on automatic promotion. They ended up going to a playoff final a two-legged final against Frosinone. Um, and I don't even know if it, it probably made some waves in international uh, soccer news or football news, um, but maybe not as much as it did for us and, and, and within Italy. But during that playoff final, it was in that second leg in Frosinone where Palermo just needed to draw or win. They had two out of the three results that they could have and they went down one nil and it wasn't that bad because, you know, still plenty of game left. But towards the end of the match, Frosinone started engaging in some very anti-sporting behavior, including every time Palermo was on a counterattack or in the final third or coming close to Frosinone's goal, ball boys would be throwing balls onto the pitch, okay. effectively stopping play. As bad as that was, it was even worse because there was footage of players on the Frosinone bench rolling balls out onto the pitch during some of these counterattacks. And it was during one of those situations where Palermo was in their, the, the attacking third. They lose the ball, partly because the ball got rolled out on the pitch. Frosinone goes down and scores and goes up 2-0. And that was like with three minutes left and effectively killed the match. And there was a lot of protests 
nothing happened. But really what that condemned us to was, yes, another season of Serie B, but it condemned us to the final nail in the coffin of what was really happening with Zamparini and um, you know how maybe why his strategy changed and he started looking in Eastern Europe was because he couldn't afford to make these gambles, these more expensive gambles in South America. So there's some stuff happening behind the scenes that we didn't quite know about until, you know, uh, a year or two later when it became obvious as he was um, trying to manage the club. Yeah, and I suppose the really sad part of it is all these ingoings and outgoings of managers, ins and out of new players that left Palermo, um, unfortunately, in debt. And, you know, obviously you can imagine with all these ingoings and outgoings that the wage budget, you know, fluctuates. Um, I think Zamperini resigned in 2017. Um, before the relegation was confirmed. Um, and, you know, obviously Palermo will look out looking out for a new buyer. Um, but then I think Zamperini, Zamperini then handed a five-year ban from football in 2019. Um, apparently, he, he, he sort of allegedly money laundered and had a house to rest um, after doing a bit of studying. Um, I realised that. But December 2018, saw Zamperini selling Palermo Um to a few separate new owners um, that didn't really have a inkling how much of a mess, the sort of financial mess that the club was in. Um, I think around then, did they, were they floating around uh, Serious C, Palermo? Um, and I suppose most importantly, the, the Italian Football Federation um, excluded Palermo from all professional football due to club's failures for paperwork at the start of the new season. Um, obviously, you can imagine that the whole first team leaves the football club and that declared, you know, the football club bankrupt. And, you know, that must have been so tough for you as fans. You know, I couldn't imagine. I mean, Liverpool were were in a bad state in 2010, 2011 with the American owners that we had then. But, you know, I can only imagine how tough that must have been as a Palermo fan. Just, just tell us about that time and, you know, that timeline that happened, how you felt personally and how all the club um, club's fans felt as well. Yeah, so in 2017, so now we're thinking about what was going on, a second season in Serie B and what that meant. And Zamparini for years had been had basically told the media, he told anybody who had listened that he was looking for new ownership. And that's true. I mean, he had always talked about potential Arab investors, you know, maybe, you know, even in the US investors that way. So he had always been seeking partners or even new owners in order to help influx the, the club with cash. But it was in 2017 that like things started to get a little weird. Let me just say it that way. Okay. So Zamparini resigns as president. He's still owner in 2017 because he makes an announcement that a gentleman by the name of Paul Baccalini is going to be the new owner. Uh, or, or the new president. And Paul Baccalini was a Italian-American, but he was like a DJ. I don't know. It's, it's very weird. If you search his name, you'll see some very hilarious pictures of this heavily tatted, tattooed young guy who was more of a media personality than an investor or somebody who could run the club. So 
I think that lasted for just a couple months, and then and then an, another president was brought on. Um, and this is all before a sale of the club. So Zamparini was still owner. He was still calling the shots. And it was after that time. Now we're into the 2018 season, okay, in Serie B. And Zamparini announces that he found owners. And he is definitively selling the club to this English group um, led by a man named Clive Richardson. And he decides this was in late December of that year that he's selling the club. And he did. He sold it. And it was one of those things where a lot of the Palermo fans, myself included, we were a little shocked that, wow, this is actually happening. He's talked about this for six or seven years. This is happening now. And we really couldn't believe it. Now, there was something weird about this group. All right. And I, none of us could put place a finger on it, but they had talked about making investments. They had talked about the fact that they were going to come in and you know revitalize this historic club and bring us back to great heights. And yet, when my good friend, a, a journalist over there, uh, his name is um, Benedetto uh, Giardina, he goes by Benny, started to uncover a lot of the um, financial entanglements that this new ownership had. He found that, you know, when he was looking at in, in, um, in the British records, some of these, these, um, Things had just, some of these groups had just been founded and they didn't even have proper finances in their accounts at the time. And when he would look up addresses and whatnot, they'd point to like residential buildings. And so it seemed like a lot of smoke and mirrors. And sure enough, uh, a couple months in, there were key financial deadlines that the club had to meet, including paying your players, uh, you know, every month on time. And this stuff started to slip, all right? And um, the GM or the sporting director at the time, Rino Foski, he's a, um, you know, a long time, uh, he's had long associations with Palermo itself. He's, he's you know, basically Sicilian himself. And he um, was recognizing the threat here of what this meant. If they were missing uh, wage payments, they were at risk now for being docked points in a season in which they're trying to get back to Serie A, and that can't happen. And he ended up you know, calling out this new ownership group for what they were, which was just a lot of smoke and mirrors. And he ends up buying back the club for 10 euro. So think about that. The sporting director came back in and, and paid and bought the club with his own money <laughs> in order to, you know, uh, keep, keep it running. Now, during all this time, even though Zamparini was officially away, there was this sense that he was still behind a curtain somewhere. And it was at that time that we had seen some of Zamparini's closest confidants and, and former leadership groups still involved in the club. So 
the idea or, or the belief was that he was still attached to the club. And so he tried to, you know, link up with this English group that didn't work out. And then there was another group that came along and this is the ultimate downfall. So they end up selling the club again to a couple of Sicilian businessmen who were brothers who ran a travel agency. And it was at that point. So, so it was at that point where now things were starting to get even weirder. These guys were making all sorts of announcements about, hey, this is great. A lot of us are saying, who are these guys and how do they have money? So, you know, things, you know, A and B, it was not coming together. Uh, we're trying to connect the dots. And ultimately, as we look, um, that season, Palermo, I believe, finished in third place in the Civia B season. In fact, at one point, getting back to the whole wage, uh, the, the potential to miss wages, like there was a $5 million bill that needed to be covered and nobody was able to step forward and cover it. And the current owner, actually, by the way, was a long time, I'm talking about present day, the current owner was a season ticket holder, longtime fan of the club. He was also a local businessman. He stepped in with the 5 million of his own money to yeah. pay, that, pay that wage bill and avoid a point deduction and avoid all this stuff. And he did that partly out of the goodness of his heart. He had also like kind of struck up a little marketing deal for him for the future, which, hey, fine. You help save the club, you help save the club. But at the end of the season, we finished third place. We're about to go into the playoff uh, again. And the Italian judicial uh, system had been involved, looking at irregularities, looking into the sales and whatnot. Long story short, Palermo was banned from taking part in the playoff that year. They were further docked something like 20 points, which put them in the relegation zone, which means at the end of that year, they were being relegated to Serie C because of these financial irregularities. And that's when the chaos really started to take off because you had these Tutolomondo brothers, that was their name, still as owners of the club. And, and there was a third guy there. And they were making all these proclamations about, nope, we're okay. We're still fighting this. And the judicial system will be fine. We'll be fine. And in fact, we believe we should be in Syria A, not even Syria B. At one point, they locked people out of the stadium, like staff. And they were like holding down fort in the stadium. Um, and not to belabor the point here, but it came to the time to register for the following season. And we're talking about like not a lot of money here. Like it costs maybe a thousand euro to fill out the paperwork to sign up for the subsequent season. And they said they would do it. And they said they were making that payment. And sure enough, when the time came, the deadline came and passed, they did not pay it. And in fact, they claimed that it was all due to a fax machine. This is classic Italian football nonsense. <laughs> a fax machine in it, it was someplace in central europe it was like yes the fax machine that we were using in bulgaria did not send over the money in time this is unacceptable so they were frauds um they're still being uh prosecuted even to this day they have a bunch of things hanging over their heads but what that meant was that was it that was the final nail in the coffin in terms of what the but what 
Unione, uh, Unione Sportiva Palermo Calcio ended up being defunct. So they go belly up. What that meant was the following season, they would have to be reformed. And that's where we are at today. So they had a reform. They had to essentially become a brand new club and start all the way in Serie B. So the lowest tier. So we went from Serie A to Serie B. Skipped C altogether after everything was said and done and um, had a reform in, in, in Serie D. And it was a really tragic time, Mike, uh, as you can imagine, not just for us as fans, but also for, let's face it, the staff um, who had been there for a long time, the players themselves, there was a lot of uncertainty there. And um, yeah, not, not the best when, uh, when we look back at, at just a couple of years ago. You touched on there the the new Phoenix club that they've got is SSD Palermo and you know they're obviously striving to get back in Serie A and are they currently sat in Serie C? Yeah, so um, they are. So they reformed and it was actually the guy who put the money together to pay the wage bill who was the winning bid. There were like four different groups that made proposals to the mayor of Palermo at the time, he selected this one because there was a bona fide plan. They, they were very well um, organized in terms of what their expectations were, what their plan was, where their funding was. And the incredible thing about this, Mike, was that they formed this club with, within two weeks or three weeks of the start of the Serie D season. They went from nothing. I mean, no players no staff, nothing. And three weeks later, they had SSD Palermo, which that marker, by the way, is because it's like a non-professional league, because it's that lowest tier, that was, that's where that SSD moniker comes from, that prefix. Okay. That's no longer a part of the club. Now we are Palermo FC because we're now back in the professional tier, which is awesome. we're sitting in Serbia C right now. But anyway, um, it was incredible what Miri, Dario Miri is the new owner, what he did in both getting the club reborn and then getting players in line. They didn't have any preseason, basically. Hardly any training camp whatsoever. And they won their first 10 matches in a row. Won their first 10. At the time, it was the longest streak in Europe. Um, out of any league in Europe. So that was a pretty cool thing to experience. And obviously what happened, that was in the 2019-2020 season. We know what happened in 2020. Uh, All the footballing world essentially came to a standstill and there was uncertainty there. What's going to happen? Palermo at the time was in first place in their group. But I don't know if you know this, Mike, there's 166 teams in Serie D. And they were sitting in first place out of all 166 at that moment. So, you know, with, with COVID um, and everything that happened, the decision was made obviously months later, but they were going to promote everybody who was in the top of their respective groups up to City of C. And that's what leads us to where we're at today. So we are in another season of um, City of C. The very first season a year ago, we made it to the playoffs. But as bad as the playoff system is, is, is in 
Serie B, or if you think about the, uh, the, the, the championship in England, Serie C, it is insane because you have upwards of 20 teams that can make that playoff. And it is a wild path. So even last year, the club made it through the first, I think, four rounds, but they still had like three rounds to go. And um, here we are. It looks very much like that's going to have to be the path to getting promoted to Serie B this year. Um, so it's, it's where we're at right now. It's, it's, it's very tough. I mean, as, as hard as it is and as good as it was to get out of D because that's a, that is a deadly place to be, no pun intended, but um, Serie C is an equally competitive beast and complex beast to, to, to um, try to navigate. Yeah. When I was doing my research, obviously, on the, the new club that's just been founded the other year, um, I believe they broke the attendance for Serie D. Um, their opening game was 17,000. So that sort of just goes to show that the people of Palermo are obviously right behind this new club. And, you know, how much are you looking forward personally to seeing how far they can go? And, you know, hopefully one day, obviously, you'll be able to go back to Sicily and go, go and watch them. Yeah, that's the dream. The dream is to get them, you know, back to where they belong. And I, I think I, I speak on behalf of, all of Sicilians, when, when we say there should be better representation from Southern clubs in Serie A and, and Italian calcio is much better with that representation. You know, the Palermo historically, Catania, I have to say Catania too, but those two were big uh, parts of uh, what made it uh, a great league. Anyway, that being said, I think, you know, as you look, you know, everybody thinks Maurizio Zamparini. Not a lot of people know who this current owner is, Dario Miri, but he himself has admitted that he had a three-year plan. The, the pandemic put a, threw a wrench in that plan. And he has candidly talked about the fact that he doesn't have the kind of investment um, dollars or euro that a guy or a businessman like Zamparini had. And so he knows that his, his goal has always been he wants to get the club to Serie B and then turn it over to new owners or at least get better uh, investors so that they can go from B to, to A in a way that um, needs that kind of financial support. And so he's been very clear about that. There was an Italian-American who was a partner with them. They kind of had a falling out. So now it's just him again. But here we are. We're in year three of this three-year plan. And the money is drying up uh, a little bit. And, and so there's this sense of urgency that we need to find either investment or the results on the pitch need to happen. And so if, if Palermo does not get promoted to Serie B this year, there is some nervousness about what happens the following year with the kind of money that you need. And so, you know, part of it is we're, we're dealing with that Rosa Nero situation again, where we have a lot that we can look forward to, but there's this lingering fear that things could go awry very quickly. Absolutely fantastic, mate. So, I mean, just before I let you go, I just want to say a massive thank you for giving up your time, coming on. 
Um, I think it's such a unique story that our listeners are going to absolutely love. Um, and I think uh, I'll be following Palermo FC's results. I'll be keeping an eye out for them. And I think uh, I think I've got a new favourite Italian team that I'll be keeping keeping a very close eye on. Mike, that's great. Uh, thank you once again for having me. What I would say to any of the listeners and yourself included is if you are looking for um, uh, news or information results about this club and you don't know Italian, that's fine because that's what, you know, essentially I'm here for. We have a Twitter account called Ultra Palermo where you can follow on Twitter and see where they're at, you know, on a day-to-day basis. We even do some live match tweeting every once in a while so you can follow along and see who the new names are at the club. And um, it's just a great resource for anybody outside of Italy um, to see what's happening with the club because we want to get back to where we feel we belong. So, And I'll, uh, I'll put a link directly to that in the bio for the podcast as well so people can go straight to that. Awesome. All right, Mike, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Uh, getting to talk about my my beloved Palermo. So. If you enjoyed that episode and want to keep notified for future episodes, please make sure you subscribe, follow and share. And of course, leave us a five-star rating. You can now follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, all at Go In The Match to keep updated for future episodes and updates on the podcast.